In Titus chapter 3, Paul places an emphasis on being reminded. Using the command of reminder established in verse 1, it implies that what Paul is sharing has been heard before. And the same is true, ironically, for us. It's something that we've heard before. Today will be no different. You've showed up and you've heard passages preach, or you've heard instruction, and you've heard it before. I'm thankful for the rich heritage that exists at this church and being a gospel-preaching lighthouse for the strong biblical affirmation our church has for the doctrines of grace. Yet I do believe that to some degree this makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable to apathy. It makes us vulnerable to indifference. It makes us vulnerable because we can hear these words so often and we got to make sure that the gospel flame burns brightly in our hearts as believers and that its instruction should encourage us, not just in evangelism, but in our daily walks. In Milton Vinson's book, The Gospel Primer, he writes, all Christians should become an expert in their knowledge and use of the gospel, not simply so that they can share it faithfully with non-Christians, but also so that they can speak it to themselves every day and experience its benefits. In fact, if Christians would do more preaching of the gospel to themselves, non-Christians might have less trouble comprehending its message for they would see its truth and power exuding from believers in indisputable ways. This precisely reflects what the Apostle Paul's heart is in sharing when he wrote the passage that we're going to study today. The Cretan believers know the gospel. And now Paul, as I mentioned last week, is providing the theological backbone for the instructions that have been provided throughout the letter. Let's read Titus uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and we want to keep in mind that our focus is going to be on verses 4 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 from the NAS says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The title of our message is the ultimate remedy for our depravity. And the sermon proposition is in your notes as well. It says this, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, shares three aspects of God's remedy to our depravity so that we more deeply 
understand and appreciate our salvation and God's purposes for it. That is what is driving the heartbeat of Titus. He wants us to make sure that they understand it. He wants to make sure that they appreciate it. And he wants the Cretan believers to see its purposes. God's purposes. Aspect number one, God's motive for us. Verse four offers three insights into the motive of God. God's motive is reflected in his kindness, in his love, his appearing. Aspect number two, God's means for us. Verses five and six are referring to how he saved us. It was through his action. It wasn't based on anything that we did or didn't do. It was not based on any righteousness that we brought to the table, but it was based on his mercy. And verses five and six reveal three ways that he displays his mercy through regeneration, through renewing, through Jesus Christ. Aspect number three, God's mission for us. Verse seven references what he saved us for. We're going to be heirs of eternal life. It allows us to also serve his purposes now and for all eternity. The sermon outline's in your notes, and so let's tackle our first aspect together. The first aspect of God's remedy to our depravity so that we can more deeply understand and appreciate salvation and God's purposes for it is God's motive for us. Look at the beginning of verse four. It reads, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. After last week, after getting hit with a strong dose of reality, when we talked about the harsh reality of our depravity, Paul now gets ready to share the ultimate remedy. And he does so by setting up the stark contrast between what we were and what God has done for us in Christ. And he does it by using the conjunction but. The Holy Spirit leads Paul to provide three insights into the motive of God. We have this verse that just hammered us, painted this picture of who we are, and now he says, but. And we get to see his kindness, his love, his appearing. First, let's talk about God's kindness. God's kindness led him to provide the ultimate remedy for our condition. And depending on your translation, this word can also be translated goodness or generosity. And we know this isn't just some generic form of kindness because it's connected with God our Savior. It's the only time that this word is used here in the New Testament. So we have no cross-reference to refer to. God showed his kindness to us though we were unkind to him. And as one commentator expressed it, God had the right to say, I am the creator of your souls. I am the one who made you. If you rebel against me, I will wipe you off the face of the earth. Instead, he broke our cycle of hatred by responding with mercy and kindness. 
Just as Romans 5, 6 affirms, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were still helpless, when we had nothing, when we had no answer, Christ died for the ungodly. The Apostle Paul makes another connection to God's kindness. And it takes place in Romans chapter 2 when he asks a very practical question for us to consider. In the context, God, Paul's addressing God's impartiality. And he's also addressing believers who, who, who stand in judgment of others. God's kindness is mentioned this way in Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? It's the exact uh, uh, same root and carries the exact, a very similar meaning, not the exact same word that we have in, in Titus 3.4. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Here's some application for us. It should help us more clearly understand and appreciate our salvation and God's purposes for it. God's kindness should translate into our kindness toward others. Here's how one pastor expressed it. The farther we are from the acts of kindness, the farther we are from acting like God. For those of you who are TV watchers, you may have noticed that Honda has this new line of commercials. They're called uh, Honda's Random Acts of Kindness. This is what they entail. It's just um, Honda uh, sales reps basically going out and they just show up. They show up at one point to uh, pay for this woman's groceries. They show up to pay for this poor college student's books at one point. All the college students are like, Amen. Take that. We'll take that. And then there's another time where they, they show up just randomly to help parents who are moving. This family that's moving. And what is the response of the people when they receive that kindness? They're just, they're just blown away. Completely unexpected. Now in the end, the motive behind this marketing scheme is so that people would be drawn to Honda as a car manufacturer. We happen to like Hondas. We drive Honda. Honda minivan. It's great. But what about our random acts of kindness done with pure motives that draw people to to focus on our Savior? Your service and kindness to others is a great spiritual weapon in the plan of God. And God used his kindness to draw us to himself. And now God uses you by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to to show kindness to others. And he does that so that his purposes can be accomplished. So that people can be drawn to him. It's not about anyone thinking, oh, they're just a really kind person. They're, they're, They're so sweet. That's what the world does. We draw people, we we bless people, and we don't take the credit because we want to point it to the reality that we were redeemed. That God gave us a heart and that his kindness led us to repentance. 
is actually one of the ninefold fruits of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.23. Kindness. And there are ways that we can show it. There's practical ways that we can show it. You, just the Christmas season is a great opportunity. You, you want to bake some chocolate chip cookies and take them down to your neighbor across the street and, and, and extend an act of kindness as a representative of Christ. You want to get your neighbor's trash cans that they left out because it was raining, right? And, and the trash came and got picked up and you can go ahead and wheel their trash cans back to the side of the garage for them. They're going to be out of town. They're going to visit somebody. You can mow their, their grass if they don't have lawn care. There are all different kinds of ways that we can express it. I'm thankful that I have a believing neighbor. His name's Daniel, and he's actually going to give us a ride to the airport when we fly back to Chicago. And I appreciated his heartbeat. God expressed his kindness to us when we were lost, and we get the privilege of initiating that kindness through us as we represent him. And when we dwell on his kindness, we cultivate a deeper appreciation an understanding of our salvation and the purposes for it. Saved people save people. There's an evangelism strategy for you. Saved people are used by God to save people. They are the ambassadors. They are the representatives. We know they themselves don't save anyone spiritually, but you get what I'm saying with that statement. It's powerful. Save people are used by God to save people. It's what we do, and it's how the Lord uses us to accomplish his purposes. And it reflects the very motive and the heartbeat of God's kindness to do so. Well, verse 4 shares a second insight into God's motive for us, which is letter B in your outline, and that's his love. More specifically, verse, says, uh, verse 4 says, his love for mankind. This phrase is actually just one word in the Greek. It's philanthropia. It's the Greek word for which we get our English word philanthropy. And it's, the, it's a compound word, and it's made up of two words. To, to love, phileo, and then anthropos, or anthropoi in the, in the plural. So it literally means a love toward man, or a love toward mankind. And the only other place that it's used is actually in the book of Acts when Paul was traveling with his companions. In Acts 28.2, he and his companions were traveling and they got shipwrecked on Malta. And it says that they were very cold and that the people in Malta actually uh, came out to them and they took them in and they built them a fire. And it says that they they employed extraordinary kindness to them through their philanthropia, their love for them. Well, God's philanthropy certainly goes beyond that of man. Who else can love people who only harbor hatred and malice in return? And not just some people, but all people. There are none righteous, no, not one. And yet it reflects God's motive so that we're more deeply appreciative and understanding of our salvation and God's purposes for it. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love 
toward us in that while we were yet sinners, and yet while we were yet haters, while we were yet rejectors of him, Christ died for us. God's remedy to our depravity helps us more deeply understand and appreciate our salvation and God's purposes for it. And there's a divine philanthropy that takes place. And we see it actually in 1 John 4, 19, when it says we can love him, right? Because he first loved us, right? Through the gospel, there's an enabling love that takes place. Our hearts has been changed to love him in return. Our hearts have been changed to love others in a way that honors and magnifies him. Is loving the unlovable an area of weakness or strength for you? For some of you, it's a strength. It's encouraging. You, you have, and God has matured you and grown you to a place that you can look past the sin that somebody will throw in your face sometimes. And God has graciously grown you and matured you. It's, it's encouraging to watch. It's encouraging to see people who have that response. Find somebody who's weaker. Find somebody in your family. Find somebody in your care group. Find somebody at school, a classmate. Bring them along. Show them what God's love looks like. I'm amazed, and it's a rebuke to my own heart, how easily I can get, and I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone, how bent out of shape that I can get when one person sins against me over the course of a week. You know? Just just rubs us the wrong way. And it's spiritually healthy for us to consider that the power of Christ through the gospel enables us to respond in love to them. So much so that, imagine this, even if every single interaction that you had with somebody that week and they, they respond and they sin against you, you're enabled. God in his grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit would allow you to respond that way. And I think it's, it's spiritually healthy for us to anticipate the offenses that are going to come. And I am, I am talking to my own heart right now. I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow morning with my family. I'm excited to fly, fly back for our family Christmas party. Uh, we're flying to Chicago. Pray for us that we don't freeze. When we blasted with a snowstorm, although Lydia's just pumped to see snow. She's fired up. But even my own heart, I know my unbelieving family, there's going to be sins. There's going to be selfishness. There's going to be pride. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be challenges. I don't know if anybody else in the room might possibly be faced with the same predicament. Anticipate it, be ready. It is not natural for a person to respond in love. It's not. It's divine. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Do you want to more deeply understand the depth of God's love? Then make it your testimony to respond in love when people sin against you. Because that's what he's done for us. And it's one of the driving motives in the gospel 
Well, verse 4 shares a third insight into God's motive for us. It's reflected by his appearing. Look at how verse 4 ends. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind, it says, appeared. And there's not a more appropriate way for us to prepare our hearts for Christmas than through reflecting right here on this verse. When I was seeking the elders' counsel just on preaching this passage in perspective, I really appreciated um, one of the brothers, and I, I was grateful. He, re, he reminded us all, just even through the course of our fellowship and talking, that it wasn't just God's attributes that were put on display. It wasn't just his love. It wasn't just his kindness. Yeah, they, they all, they're all factored in to his motive. But he came for us. He appeared. He showed up. It's a powerful expression and reflection of his motive for us. And perhaps you've heard the expression when someone isn't able to go see someone in person that they really care for, they, they will, will, will say what? They'll say, oh, send them my love, right? You ever heard people say that? Send, send them my love. Send them my love. That is received quite differently when a person shows up and meets their loved one face to face. And we get to see examples of this all the time. When U.S. military people um, make, make strategies to come home and, and surprise, surprise family and loved ones. And they're at a place where all of a sudden they're talking to them on Skype, on a screen, right? And they're, 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 they're so different. But they're still sending their love. They're still expressing their love. And then all of a sudden they come out from behind the stage or from some place and they show up and they meet them face to face. And it is amazing isn't it it's just amazing and this is what is being expressed in the greek when talking about our savior the word is translated appeared and it's the greek word epiphino from which we get our word epiphany and this is the same word that paul used in titus 2 11 when he wrote the grace of god appeared bringing salvation our god just didn't send his love Send them my love. He stepped out of heaven and he came in person. He showed up and we celebrate it during this season. He took on human flesh. He became the God-man for us. God's work in salvation is so personal to him that his heart motive led the Lord Jesus Christ to come in person to save us. And this is what God said was going to happen through the prophet Isaiah. It's what we sang when we celebrate Emmanuel, which means God with us. It came to fruition when Christ became man and was born 2,000 years ago. And Jesus willingly stepped into a world that stood against him. As the scripture teaches us, he was despised. He was forsaken. Yet God's motive was for us. His motive led him to appear. His remedy to our depravity helps us more deeply understand and appreciate our salvation and God's purposes for it. 
Well, God didn't just appear, but he came to save us. And this is a good transition to our second aspect revealed in verses 5 and 6. Aspect number 1 reveals God's motive for us. Aspect number 2 reveals God's means for us. His remedy to our depravity involved his means to save us. Look at how verse 5 and 6 spell it out for us. Verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The first way that we see God's ultimate remedy through his means is through his action. This is letter A under our second point. Look at the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. In the Greek, this verb views salvation as a decisive act performed at, performed at a point in time. And this is the main verb of this entire sentence. Verses 4 through 7 in the Greek, I'll have you know, is one sentence by the Apostle Paul. And this is the main verb. He saved us. And when someone is saved from something, it usually means he escaped danger. He was saved from an embarrassing moment. He was saved from financial distress. She was saved from drowning in the pool. The Bible says Christians are saved from the wrath of God, from the perilous consequences of our sin. Donald Barnhouse told of, a, uh, uh, told of a fire that swept over his dad's prairie farm. Afterward, his dad was walking across the farm and found a giant lump of charcoal that he thought was a small tree stump. When he kicked it, several baby chicks came running out from beneath it. The lump was the remains of a mother hen who had seen that her little chicks would not be able to escape the sweeping flames. She had gathered them under her wings and had endured the fire so that her chicks might live. That was Christ's response and means for us. Knowing that we would be engulfed, knowing that we'd be completely overtaken by the inferno of God's wrath and the rightful consequences that we owed because of our sin. He willingly remained on the cross, absorbing the inferno of God's wrath on our behalf. And Romans 5, 9 says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul then expands on God's means by sharing what it is based on. But before he does that, he first lets us know what it's not based on. And this is letter B under our second point. God's means is not based on your righteous works. Verse 5 says it this way in the NASB. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In the ESV it says, not because of words done by us in righteousness. In, in the Greek, this clause is brought all the way forward 
putting it in an emphatic position. And as we've learned through our journey through Titus, the theme of good works is prevalent throughout the letter. It's significant. But it's always tied to the desirable good works that are produced in in the life that's touched with salvation. Such works do not effect salvation, but reflect its presence through grace. And when works are done as a means to achieving a righteous standard before God, that's when we run into big problems. And I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. Maybe we become unworthy because we attempt, if we try to claim our own righteousness, we usurp the righteousness that is made available and only the only true righteousness that comes through Christ, which he supplies. Divine righteousness before God cannot be attained by any human effort. And it says Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 shares, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast by his design. It's all him. Again, Cornerstone, this isn't anything that you haven't heard before. We know that when we come to Christ for salvation, that we must come filing spiritual bankruptcy, right? We're filing. We got nothing. We have nothing. There's nothing spiritually that we bring to the table. And just like the baby chicks who would have perished physically, if not for the sacrifice of the mother hen, on a much grander scale, the same is true for us. We would perish spiritually if not for the blanket of hovering protection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who protects us from the wrath of God. Are you trusting entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ's work? That's all of us making sure you're resisting any temptation to put trust in any other thing. Nothing we can add to our spiritual resume will make a difference. Our human goodness can't be factored into the equation. Only those who trust completely in Christ alone, by faith alone, will be saved. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God's ultimate remedy to our depravity helps us more deeply understand and appreciate our salvation. And this is the second aspect that allows us to see what, it, what it's based on. Letter C, under our second point, shares this. It's based on his mercy. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Now look at the middle of verse 5. But according to his mercy. And the conjunction here, translated but, is the strongest adversative possible in the Greek. And in the Greek, this word mercy describes the emotion roused by undeserved affliction in others. It has the sense of compassion or pity. And it was in accordance with the mercy that God saved us even when we were deserving of the affliction that our sin brings upon us. And then Paul goes on to share three ways that God displays his mercy. And these are listed under letter C in your outline for you. Through regeneration, through renewing, through Jesus Christ. 
First, let's talk about God's mercy through regeneration. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, he saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. Washing here speaks of our cleansing from the defilement of our sin in regeneration. Now, if we wanted to, we could, there's a lot written on the doctrine of regeneration. We could spend weeks uh, really just going from passage to passage looking at the doctrine. But for the sake of today's sermon, we want to make sure that we know what regeneration means. And so systematic theologian Wayne Grudem defines it as this, a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. And this is a very basic definition. Theologian Bruce Demarest has a deeper way of describing it, and I appreciated this. I put it in the sermon outline for you. He says it this way, Regeneration is the work of the Spirit at conversion that renews the heart and life, the inner self, thus restoring the person's intellectual, volitional, moral, emotional, and relational capacities to know, love, and serve God. That's what I'm talking about. That's a a definition for regeneration right there. All-encompassing. It involves the entirety of the person and everything that flows out of the person. Might need a volunteer to help me out. Elijah! So, come on up, my friend. How are you today? You gonna help me out? <sighs> Thank you. Thank you. Um... You know what this is? Here, go ahead and hold it. Oh, fumble! We're on it. What is it? Yeah, it's 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 a crushed can. That's exactly right. You got it right. Ding 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 ding. One for one. All right, we're keeping track. Okay, very very good. Uh, Elijah, I want you to look at me for a moment. This can is actually a representation of Titus 3.3. Elijah, this is what your life will look like without Christ. As Titus 3.3 says, it, it saved us from our foolishness. The gospel saved us from our foolishness. Through the the power and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he saved us from our disobedience. He saved us from our deception, that we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, that we were hateful, and that we hated one another. Now, I want you to do something for me. Can you do something for me? You're already one for one. All right, you see this? What am I holding in this one? This is a, a full can of Coke, right? I want you to do something for me. Take that. I want you to make that can look exactly like this can. Just with you, only with your hands, through your works and through your efforts, I want you to, to, this is what I need you to do, Elijah. I need you to make that can look exactly like this so it can function like this, so that it can hold some Diet Coke and so it can drink. We both know that this is your dad's beverage of choice. (laughs) 
Sean, one, every, one of these every morning. Not a coffee drinker. I did drink some coffee with me. Ah, I think I got my Diet Coke. All right. Mick, go ahead. We're waiting on you. Go ahead. Yeah. Mick, go Great. Already a hole. Okay, you, there's a hole in it now. So, so in order for it to be like this one, now you have to fix that hole with your bare hands. Okay? <laughs> right now, Mama's going, please, don't let him cut his little hands. Hey, I'm going I'm to help you out. You want to know what? It can't be done, can it? To, to, on a human effort. You, you, cannot, you cannot do this in your own strength. You can't do it, right? Right? I want you to take that can and I want you to take this one and I want you to deliver that back to your dad because he wants to drink that right now, okay? You can go ahead and give him that can of Diet Coke, even though he's probably already had one. How about a round of applause? We get the point. It's impossible for a human to do. We need God's mercy. We need God's mercy. Regeneration is a powerful work of God that provides the ultimate remedy to our depravity seen in this aspect of God's means so that we have a deeper understanding and appreciation for our salvation and God's purposes for it. And just as Bruce Demarest writes, and you have this definition in your notes, it renews the heart and life, the inner man, restoring the person's intellectual, volitional, moral, emotional, and relational capacities to know, love, and serve God. And it's powerful. And it's miraculous. And it's God's work. And the Apostle Paul wrote a powerful verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that reflects the reality of God's mercy in regeneration when he wrote this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Galatians 6.15, Paul said to the Galatian believers, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Practically, this means that we trust in God's work through the gospel for our regeneration. You don't trust in Christian parenting. You don't trust in water baptism for new life. You don't trust in the fact that you've always gone to church. Or that you were raised going to a Christian school through a social gospel. That you went to the Awana program all those years of growing up. It means that we trust in God's mercy in Christ that he displays through the gift of regeneration when our hearts are converted through the gospel. Well, there's a second way that God displays his mercy and that's through renewing. Look at the end of verse five. It says, he saved us, and I'm bringing the, the main verb all the way from the, the front of, of our passage, starting in verse 4. He saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
And there's a close connection between these two displays of God's mercy. I need you to track with me here. Regeneration points to the act of entering into new life, just as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. We, we are, who are in Christ, we're a new creation. All things are new. While renewing points to the qualitative nature of that new life. And the same word renewing is used in Romans 12.2, where we're transformed by the renewing, exact same word, the renewing of our mind. And so for my deep theologians, this is where we actually see an overlap between our positional and our progressive sanctification. When we are regenerated and renewed, they are both positional and progressive in their aspects. Well, Romans 12.2 is certainly a great verse to apply the progressive aspect of God's mercy in renewing us. And that verse commands us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. Metamorphomai in the Greek. There's a metamorphosis. There's God's work in our lives renewing us and renewing our minds. And this takes place when we renew our minds with the scriptures. And this is, I know, another reminder for us all. We need his word. We need his word to be renewed. How was your time in God's word last week? I hope it was a blessing. I hope it brought renewal to you. I hope it blessed you and encouraged you. You know, I think it's a fitting time because I know my own heart and I know what comes with the holiday season. It's so interesting that we have more time off work and a break from school, but then somehow all these other things come in on our time and and God's word can be pushed aside. Let's pray for one another in our care groups. Let's pray that, that we would find time for renewal in God's word, that it wouldn't get pushed out that we would make it the priority that it needs to be. May our breaks from school and work provide additional time of study and reflection, not less time for it. Well, the third way that God displays his mercy is through Jesus Christ, and here is how verse 6 describes it. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now this is an amazing verse. You want to know why? Because there are a few verses in the Bible that actually represent all three members of the Godhead. And this is it. This is one of them right here. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. The pronoun whom is pointing back to the Holy Spirit in verse 5. The verb he poured out points to the action of God the Father. And both are focused on Jesus Christ. Here we see all three members of the Godhead involved in God's display of mercy that is poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And here Paul is sharing that God's Spirit has been poured out on us generously, or the word can also be translated richly. Through the Holy Spirit, we have the increasing power to live the Christian life. It means power over 
temptation. It means testimony, testifying to our faith. It enables us to understand Scripture, to witness to other people, to love the unlovable. And on and on the list goes. And this is really an appropriate way to sum up the second aspect of God's means for us as he displays his mercy. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, provide three aspects of God's remedy to our depravity so that we more deeply understand and appreciate our salvation and God's purposes for it. Aspect number one, in verse four, we saw God's motive, and it's revealed through three insights to his motive, his kindness, his love, his appearing. Aspect number two, we saw God's means for us, and this is referring uh, to verses five and six, that it was through his action. It wasn't based on anything that we brought to the table, but it was by his mercy. His mercy through regeneration, his mercy through renewing, his mercy poured out lavishly on us through Jesus Christ. Well, aspect number three is this, God's mission for us. And this is referring to what he has saved us for, okay? Verse three is actually what he saved us from. Now in this verse, we get, what he has saved us for. Look at verse seven, it says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse seven functions really as a purpose clause. And in the seminary, they taught us in our sermons, they, they're, like, Don't, you just, you, they're not even a, a, the, the main point because they're, they're this clause is actually supporting the first two points. Does that make sense? So using our, our sermon outline, we, we could say it this way. It supports all the previous verses and we can actually even bring questions to our outline. Like what is the purpose of God's motive for us? What is the purpose of God's means for us? And we get the answer through this verse. The purpose is God's mission for us. And it's twofold, reflected by letters A and B in the outline. The immediate or the near context allows us to see that we are heirs of eternal life. The main verb in this clause is that we would be made. And God saved us so that we would be made heirs of eternal life. Heirs can also be translated inheritors. Through faith, we are moved from slavery to sin to sonship and adoption and are positioned as heirs, just as Galatians 4, 1 and 7 shares. We are, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, just as Romans eight seventeen reveals. And it's a beautiful and glorious truth. And it's only going to be amplified when we're in his eternal presence. The Apostle Paul also wants us to see something that's significant as he's writing this entire letter. Has he mentioned good works a number of times? He has. It's, it's a rich theme in, in the book. And so that we call this the greater context. This is moving out from, from this passage. And that's what our final subpoint says, serving his purposes now and for all eternity. How is that accomplished? Brothers and sisters, it's accomplished by the good works that he's prepared in advance that we might walk in. That's it. That's what we were saved for. 
In fact, what does he say in the very next verse? Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And why is Paul sharing all this? Because he wants us to be impacted by these three aspects of God's remedy for, for our depravity. And that we would understand them fully. That we would appreciate them fully. And that we would see the purpose for them. Our enlistment into the service of God begins on this side of the cross now. And it will continue for all eternity. The difference is, you'll laugh at this one. Well, you may not laugh. We get tired on this side of the cross, don't we? It, it, our, our, our efforts, right? That's a result of the curse. It's hard work. And so the next time that we meet, we're going to have a chance to look at verse 8 in greater detail. Well, I hope your heart's been encouraged by these three aspects that we've seen in Titus 3. And our passage today features powerful, powerful aspects of the redemptive work of the gospel. And it just so happens that it's falling on a day that we're going to celebrate communion. And again, that's from the Lord. The Lord orchestrates it all. It wasn't anything that I scheduled. And it's also comes at a time as we're preparing our hearts for the celebration of Christmas in the coming weeks. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then our worship team's going to come up, and we'll transition to our celebration of communion. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we had have had in your word and for the blessing of seeing your heartbeat put on display your motive for doing the things that you've done on our behalf for our redemption how it reflected your love and your kindness but even beyond that that you you came for us it was so personal to you that you came for us you came to this earth. Your son was born here. Your son dwelt here. And ultimately, Father, your son died here. And he absorbed your wrath. And we praise you for that, Father. May we be reminded of that reality during the Christmas season. That even the baby that is often on display in the manger came to shed blood, came to pay the price in every single way, to live the life that we couldn't live and ultimately to die and pay the sacrifice that we could never pay on our own. So Father, I just pray as we turn our attention now towards celebration of communion that you would allow us to truly just drink in deeply the reality of your redemptive work in our lives. And I pray for those that are here today that might not be believers, that are seeking or perhaps you're drawing them to yourself. 
that they would be able to witness this celebration to see how we celebrate the reality of the work that you've done on our behalf. And that's a cause of great joy and it's a serious celebration. So there's a dichotomy there. Thank you for this time to praise you through song. We ask now that you would um, turn our hearts towards reflection and that you would allow us to meditate on any sin that we need to confess before you. And though it's already nailed to the cross and paid for in full, you want us to come to be renewed, to be cleansed, to have our feet washed, so to speak, because of the sin-filled and staining world in which we live. We ask that you'll bless our time at this table, that you'll encourage our hearts with your faithfulness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as they come to pass the the bread, I want to just remind that as I've already shared that this is a celebration for believers. And so if you're here today and you're not sure you're a Christian, then you can just go ahead and let the bread pass you up. And I'll explain to you the importance of that. This is an expression of our unity in Christ. This is an expression of our uh, purchase that he has saved us from his, his wrath and that we are united in him. And there's also an aspect that we need to be reminded of as believers that if there's an offense with somebody in the church, if there's a breakdown in our fellowship, that it's best that we let this, this ordinance pass us this day, that we would go and make that right, that we would make that offense right with that person so that we could be in unity together because that's how Christ is magnified. And so before we uh, take the bread, Tiffany, if you'll just play a little background music, I just want us to have an opportunity to pray just for a minute or two and then I'll come back up that we could have our hearts right before the Lord. Let's pray. Matthew 26, 26 says this. 
While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I want a privilege to take a moment just to pray, to rejoice in the, the God-man. And this is, this is a reminder of his flesh. This is a, a reminder of his body, him taking on human flesh to come and to live and to dwell among us. As real as the bread is in our hands, is as real as, it's not even a fair illustration, God stepped out of heaven. God became real. God lived the life that we could never live. He absorbed the wrath. And by doing so, we were able to be forgiven of our sins. Let's take the bread together and enjoy it. Father, we thank you for your willingness, again, to do the unthinkable. We ask now that as we celebrate that you would allow the words of our lips, the meditation of our hearts to sing this song of praise to you.